Welcome to Love and Compassion, a podcast where we explore different topics that may challenge our current belief systems and the fears that they generate. Our hope is that through dialogue, you, the listener, will be inspired and motivated in new ways on your own journey to living a more loving and compassionate life. Please welcome your host, Giselle Taraba. Welcome to another episode of the Loving Compassion Podcast with Giselle. If you're listening to us on audio, don't forget to write a review. And if you're watching us on YouTube, subscribe to our channel for more exciting content. Today, we're going to be chatting about love and business. If you're a leader whose organizational culture is struggling, or if you're working right now in an environment that could use greater compassion, then this podcast is for you. Our guest is the president of Extreme Leadership Incorporated and the founder of the Extreme Leadership Institute organizations devoted to the cultivation and the development of extreme leaders in the business community, nonprofits, and education. His books have been featured in the Wall Street Journal and USA Today bestsellers. His book, The Radical Leap, A Personal Lesson in Extreme Leadership, is already considered a classic in the leadership field. It received Fast Company Magazine's Reader's Choice Award and was recently named one of the 100 best business books of all time. His new book, Love is Just Damn Good Business, was listed by Book Authority as one of the top business strategy books for 2020. Join me in welcoming Steve Farber. Hi, Steve. It's great to be here with you. Thank you. You finished the intro just as I was taking a sip of coffee. So (laughs) so. sorry about that. Have you noticed in the days of Zoom, how many times throughout the day you or, or somebody else you're with in a Zoom meeting says these words, you're on mute. (laughs) Yes. You're on mute. <laughs> Absolutely. That's like the word. That was a word of 2020. You're on mute. You're, You're on, on mute. mute. Yeah. 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 But it's great to be here with you. Unmuted. Thank you, know. you so much. What got you interested in love and business? Can I ask? Well, sure. It's, it's really just because I've noticed over the 30 years that I've been doing this work now that to borrow words from myself, that love is just damn good business. In other words, you know, I've spent three decades working in all kinds of industries with all kinds of companies, working with all kinds of leaders. I've had incredible mentors. And as I as I got clearer on and more conscious of of my observations, and this is 20 years ago, mm-hmm. about what it is that made the great leaders great, the people that I met in the so-called trenches, love was the thing even though it wasn't the word that was most commonly used, at least not in a public format, behind the scenes, I heard it a lot. I love working for her. I love working for him. I, I love our product. I love our company. Or, I lo- oh man, I love that brand. I, we use the word all the time. We just don't give a lot of thought to what, why, and, and therefore to how, is, is it really something or is it just language that we use? So it just became really obvious to me that it wasn't simply just a choice of words. It was really describing a very um, powerful, universal human experience. So I figure, well, as a business person, well, what if we did that consciously and intentionally? What if we, if we tried to have our customers love us instead of it being just a happy accident? What if we, what if we tried to create environments and cultures that people loved working in? Would they show up differently? And the answer, of course, as it turns out, is yes. That was one of the things that attracted me to your book is the fact that you use the word love in the title. There's not many business books that actually have the word love up front. 
which is what yeah, I yeah. Really there are there are a few. There are a few. It is funny because my evolution with this is, you know, my first book uh, was the Radical Leap, which came out in its first edition in two thousand four, which was by my calculations a long time ago. <laughs> Leap stands for love, energy, audacity, and proof. So I've been teaching this for quite some time in the context of that, you know, I call it the extreme leadership framework, cultivate love, generate energy, inspire audacity, provide proof and love being at the foundation of it. But you're right. It wasn't on the book cover. And if you went to my website in those days, and even now it doesn't say the love guy, Steve Farber, the love guy. It's a little more obvious now because it's, you know, it's the title of the book and you see the mm -hmm. book on the website, but I, but even to this day, I don't promote myself as the love guy. I'm, I'm the extreme leadership Institute. So there was a, a moment of reckoning, I guess I had where I finally said, look, it's, I'm just going to put it on the cover and see what happens. And it's not the only book that's mm -hmm. ever, you know, connected love with business in, in, in its title, but there are certainly aren't many of them. And that's what I found that there aren't many of them because I think we have such a stigma to the word love, and especially love in the workplace. One of the things I struggled with is that in my business, it's about helping people be more loving and compassionate towards themselves. And when I was putting the business together, I really struggled in being a for-profit because hmm. I didn't want to be a not-for-profit because they're always, they never have any money. They're always like, you know, begging for money and so on. And so I really struggled and what I loved about your book was that it, it made it okay that I was helping people and making money. And I, if you don't mind, I'll just pull this quote from your book, which is, be totally unapologetic for earning money, experiencing joy, and for the impact you're making in the world. And I thought, wow, like, yeah, because there's so many spiritual people. There's so many people that are doing so many good things. And they think that they have to give their stuff always for free or it can't be very costly. Whereas a lot of people are making a lot of money doing maybe some not so loving things. Why do you think there's so many misconceptions about getting paid or, you know, helping individuals? I, I don't really know where the origin of it is, although I could I could guess. But I think your your observation is right on. And the the struggle that you went through is not uncommon and because there's some there's some cultural conditioning and by cultural i mean primarily certainly in in the american culture but i think in you know you you experience it in canada and and i think it's the business culture no matter where you are in the world there is this idea somehow that making money being happy or joyful or fulfilled and having a positive impact on the world are mutually exclusive ideas that, that you have to do, you have to choose one or the other. So if you're really focused on making money, that means that you have to sacrifice something in yourself, right? You've mm -hmm. got to have a less than fulfilling family life, or you know, you just do what it takes, even though you're miserable, because you got to make the big bucks. And certainly you're not going to have an impact on the world because you know, you don't have time for that because you're too busy making money. But then you flip it around to the, the classic, I don't want to call it the nonprofit attitude, but it, but it is, it is rather prevalent in, in some mission driven nonprofit organizations. And that is, if I'm trying to have an impact on the world, that I, I, I really can't make money doing that. That that's just not right. Somehow mm -hmm. I have to fully devote myself to that. 
and there's a bit of a a bit of a martyrdom kind of mentality in that somehow. And then and then there's that one in the middle of my, my personal joy. Well, I want to be happy, so the money's not important, and if I can have a, make a difference in the world, that's cool. But really, I'm just going to focus on my own happiness. And that whole attitude is is one of those has to happen at the expense of the others. But the fact of the matter is, you don't have to be a jerk to make money. You don't have to sacrifice money for joy, and you don't have to be a martyr to change the world. Why not do all three? Why not? Where There's no universal law that I know of that says these things must be mutually exclusive. Yeah. The happiest people that I know are the ones that do all three. They're, they're wealthy or they're, or they're building their business. They're becoming wealthy. They're becoming more prosperous. They're remarkably happy and they're having a positive impact on the world all wrapped into one. So that is what I think we should all aspire to. I mean, if, or, or at least we shouldn't feel there's something wrong with us or feel guilty somehow in aspiring to that. It doesn't mean that everybody should want to make money. Some people don't. That's cool too. You know, there's, there's no judgment on any of this as far as I'm concerned. As you were talking, I was thinking about my experience with not-for-profits and there's a real resistance to anything business-like when you would want to bring any sort of business ideas forwards in the not-for-profit. They're like, well, we're not a business. And therefore there was a real resistance. And I think that what you said was spot on that there is that uh, moral high ground in terms of like business is bad and we're good. Right. But what I've noticed in the not-for-profit world is that at times there's not a lot of love or a lot of compassion within those systems. It's deeply ironic when you mm -hmm. think about it. So first of all, in terms of, oh, well, we're not a, we're not a business, so we shouldn't look at business ideas. It, again, it comes from that conditioning that some people have that that business by its nature is an evil thing. It's a, it's a bad thing. And just like anything else, there are bad businesses. There are businesses that, that damage the environment. There are businesses that damage their own people and sacrifice to the, to the proverbial bottom line. But that doesn't mean that that is what business is. Business is in its purest form, it's a collection of human beings creating value for other human beings for which they will get paid and profit. That's really what it is. There's nothing inherently bad in that. Just like anything else, we could screw it up. So in the nonprofit world, that, that one element of what you said is this, if there's a resistance to business ideas, you really need to take another look at that because great business ideas serve the mission of the organization. So a great business idea can make a nonprofit much more effective in fulfilling its mission. Mm -hmm. Great business ideas have to do with value and efficiency and innovation. You don't want any of that in your, in your nonprofit? That, that's, that's absurd. Mm -hmm. To the other point, isn't it ironic that many organizations who are whose mission is to improve the quality of life of their constituents don't get that they need to make that experience of working there or with them as rich as well in terms mm -hmm. of the experience. So if there's ever a place for love in an organizational setting, it would be in a nonprofit. I know there are, there are certain challenges about working with nonprofits because oftentimes nonprofits have as a, you know, a big part of their 
of their sphere, volunteer workers. Volunteer, volunteer people are there by definition, uh, not getting paid, right? So, so how do you, how, how do you order, you know, order volunteers around? How, how do you get them to do stuff that you're not paying them to do? And I, I always thought that was a, a pretty funny question because leadership, real leadership is about engendering a commitment in people that they do things. They do great things because they want to, not because they have to, whether you're paying them or not. It's the same dynamic in in a business, a for-profit business as a nonprofit business. I want to create the kind of relationship where people are are, are driven to do great things because they believe in, in what we're doing together. Mm-hmm. And you could argue it's even more true in a nonprofit. And then, of course, add to that, that nonprofits live or die typically based upon the the fundraising that they're able to do in other words having people that so believe in and so love the mission that they're willing to give you money they want to give you money that's not love (laughs) i love you so much i'm going to i'm going to you know put you in my will i love you so much i'm going to make a commitment to paying you know to to sending you x number of dollars a month for the rest of my life why don't we call it what it is yeah (laughs) If we do. So if you're, you know, generic nonprofit organization X, if we were to begin saying, look, how do we not the the usual question, which is how do we raise more money? But how about asking the question, what can we do to better show our supporters that we love them? It's going to generate a different kind of an idea. And what's going to happen? You're going to raise more money. Mm -hmm. Right? That's why love is just damn good business, nonprofit or otherwise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the challenge in the not-for-profits I've worked in, there was also not a lot of fundraising, but we were ministry supported or funded. And so there's a limited amount of money. And usually that depends on what the ministry is allotting for the year. Sure. And what I've seen really is a competition between, in, in some of these tend to be unionized workplaces as well, is that competition between the union and there tend to be a lot of financial incentives, which means you get a salary raise, you get benefits. But I think where at times they're lacking is that relationship piece you were talking about in your beautiful podcast, in your conversation with the Trailer Bridge people, which was talking about there's the, the monetary incentives, which are absolutely helpful, but there's that relationship piece that I think some of these organizations are really lacking. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, let's acknowledge that uh, that the vast majority of us need to work for a living, mm-hmm. right? Which means that that money is important. And the more money we have for people who are motivated that way, the more freedom we have. So there's nothing wrong with, with money. And therefore, we want to compensate people at, at least fairly and ideally generously. Mm-hmm. But that's not, it's not the whole story. I can pay you so well that you will stay here and be miserable in the process. It happens, it happens all the time, but from leadership and from a business standpoint, the question is, how do we, how do we get people to bring themselves fully to work? And it's not simply by paying them. It's that, and it's creating those relationships and the the connection between people and and showing the the gratitude you know that we have for them and making the environment 
more conducive to their to their happiness. And that's not at the expense of of high expectations. In fact, it creates higher it creates higher expectations. Because if I if I really love this place and you're my coworker and you're slacking off, I'm not going to tolerate that. <laughs> love actually creates higher standards of performance and expectations. So, yeah, money's important, but it's not the whole story. And there's, uh, I can't cite the research off the top of my head, but there's been a lot of research over the years that tends to suggest that that actually the other stuff, the human stuff, the connection stuff is is more important than money. When given a choice between making a few extra bucks down the road and being miserable, making so, you know a few a few less dollars over here, where I love the people I work with and I'm doing great work, I'll stay. The vast majority of people will stay. So what does that mean? Does that mean that money is is more important? Probably not. On the other hand, if I'm just barely getting by and those those few extra bucks a week are going to make a huge difference for my family, I might bite the bullet and do that. But the people who hired me are not going to get the best out of me. That's for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. In your book, you talk about that it's not difficult to put love into action in the workplace and that the formula is, if I got this right, do what you love in the service of people who love what you do. I was wondering if you could explain those different aspects. Yeah, you know, if, you, if you're watching this on video, you see that those words are on the wall, on the wall behind me. Um, yeah, that, that phrase is kind of the essence of this whole love practice. So let me, let me break it down for you. Do what you love in the service of people who love what you do. Three distinct categories. So doing what you love is the foundation for this whole thing. It's, the, it's your connection of your heart to your work. Because if we don't, if we just do a, a, a surface analysis of this love thing, you could come to the wrong conclusion, which is, that's all I got to do. If, I, if I'm doing what I love, then that's, that's the whole thing, man. I mean, everything else takes care of itself. And then life is blissful and fantastic. But that's not necessarily true. I could be doing what I love. And that thing that I love can be hurtful to you. That's possible. I mean, one could argue that criminals are doing what they love too. But that's obviously not the whole story. So in, in this purest sense, if all I'm concerned with is doing what I love and everybody else be damned, that's just another way of saying narcissism, isn't it? So I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's not only do what you love, but it is the foundation of it. So it's do what you love in the service of people. So yes, I'm doing what I love, connection of my heart to my work, but I'm using that to give great value to others in the service of people. That's the We've called it so many things over the years. It's servant leadership, for example, right? Yes, I'm doing what I love. I'm using all the power, all the inspiration that comes from that to give great value to you, to serve you. And so in the service of people, those people could be your constituents, it could be your customers, it could be your colleagues, it could be your family, it could be your community. But I, I wanna serve you through my heart. And not just to do that because I feel I'm obliged to, but to serve you in such a, a, a significant and profound way that the response is reciprocity. You, you love me in return. Mm -hmm. So when we have customers that raise their hand that say, oh man, I, I love what you guys do for me. I, I'm never going anywhere else. Well, that's, that's our ideal customer, isn't it? So mm -hmm. we want more of those. And, 
And, you know, there's there's that old, you know, 80-20 rule, right? That 80% of your business, 80% of your productivity will come from 20% of the people, 20% of your customers, whatever. So it's it's a little bit of a play on that because when even if it's 20% of the people that say, I love you, if I focus more of my attention on them, the people who love what I do, I'm going to attract and create more customers like that. And ideally, that's the world that I want to live in where we're, you know, it's a love fest, man. I, lo I love my work. I love what I do for you. You love me in return. What could be better than that? Mm -hmm. So I feel that it's something we should all aspire to. Now achieving it, you know, on, on all cylinders every day is, I'm not saying it's not possible, but it's, it, it's certainly challenging. And this is not easy stuff. It's not no. easy. No, no. And I think and, that's the belief that love is lo soft and fluffy. And then you're just kind of you know, you're just accepting behavior that you shouldn't be accepting. But like you said, love sets a higher standard of <laughs> quality. Yeah, that's love in its most, uh, I don't know if this is the word, confectionary treatment, like a candy. It's sweet. You know, it's yeah. it's love as a, as a sentiment. I'm talking about love as a practice and a discipline. That's a an entirely different animal. So the, really the question that we have to answer is, what should love look like in the way that we do business? And that's what the book is really all about, right? It's case after case, example after example of here's what it looks like here, here's what it looks like there. You mentioned the folks at Trailer Bridge who I interviewed on the podcast. They're also a case study in the book. You know, not a, not a particularly sexy industry. They're in shipping and logistics. Mm -hmm. And in a nutshell, they turned that company around from a bankrupt company into best place to work, you know, mm -hmm. four years in, in Jacksonville, Florida, most profitable years in the history of the company and and no virtually no turnover. They're expanding like crazy, winning all kinds of awards. And this is a company that used to be toxic and terrible and and they turned it around with love by by putting it into practice, not by just walking around saying, I love you, man. I love you, man. But <laughs> but proving it in the way that everything from the kind of people they hire and how they hire them to the way they set up physical environment to their policies and procedures when it comes to customers. It's it's all about translating it into observable behavior. That's the challenge for all of us. And since you mentioned those folks, I know one of the things that they had done was actually ask their staff what they were hoping from to get from the company. And they expressed a lot of interest in the lives of the people. And so loving the, your staff is going to translate into loving love for your customers. Can you talk a little bit about some of the ways that they turned it around? Sure. So, so let me put it in, in the context, first of all. The business case for this is really simple. <clears throat> Excuse me. Like I said before, the ideal scenario is we want, we want our customers to love us. We want our customers to love uh, our product, our service, to love the experience of doing business with us. So let's all acknowledge that as business people. And I haven't yeah. found anybody that disagrees with that, <laughs> but, but usually that's where we leave it. So let's back it up one more step. The way to make that happen for customers in a meaningful and sustainable way over time is to create an environment or a culture that people love working in. If I don't love working here, it's going to be very difficult for me to create an experience for my customers that they're going to love or to do the quality of work that's going to end up in an experience or a product or a service that they're going to love. And if we back it up one more step, I can't really create or contribute to that kind of a culture as a leader unless I love it myself first. So it all gets very personal very quickly. So at Trailer Bridge, it started, it started with Mitch Luciano, who's the now the CEO of the company. 
he was a student of my first three books, Radical Leap to Radical Edge and Greater Than Yourself. So when, when it was his turn to be the CEO, because they had been through four CEOs in three years or two years or oh something gosh. like that, they said, okay, Mitch, your turn. He said, <laughs> all right, now's my chance to really be what, you know, what I like to call an extreme leader and mm -hmm. put love into practice. So they did, they did a number of things. For example, they lowered the height of the cubicles in the office because what he, what he found was that people were working side by side for years and, and never knew each other because they were hiding in cubicle land. So he said, we need to get to know each other. Why don't we have friends at work? Won't that be great? So he got rid of the name tags. Everybody, you know, at the time, the company was like 120 people. They all walked around wearing name tags. So he thought, why do we need name tags? We should at least know each other's names. So he banished name tags. Now you could say, well, that's not, that's not a, you know, exactly business process re-engineering, but it was very symbolic. And it was a demonstration that said, now you got to learn each other's names, which, which started with him. He had to learn everybody's name. So they did, they did things like that, you know, change the physical environment. They brought in like a foosball table, ping pong table, popcorn machine in the break area. So people would hang out together. And sure enough, people started to make, you know, friends at work and, and have, have a, a more enjoyable experience, looking forward to going to work instead of dreading it. And then he asked the question that you just mentioned. He went to the folks at Trailer Bridge and he said, what do you need from us? Well, how's that for a question? <laughs> how often do we hear that one as employees? You know, I mean, we might have the, the, the old cliched suggestion box, <laughs> which has been Anonymous. around. Yeah, yeah. The suggestion box has been around forever, right? But this was very different because it was more personal. What do you need? So <clears throat> one of the things that people said was, well, we would like, a lot of people said they, they wanted two computer screens on their desk. So he said, okay. <laughs> that was it. I mean, what's the, what's the downside? They're not asking it so they could play solitaire on one screen and do their work on the other. They're asking it because it was it was going to make their work more efficient. So he said, "Sure, problem." And then and then this one is was not quite as linear in in the traditional way of thinking about business. People said we would really like to have an ice machine in the break room. So he said, "Okay, ice machine in the break room. Your wish is granted." But then what happened was nobody ordered the ice machine. So Mitch said, "Sure, you can have an ice machine." Nobody ordered it. So that was brought to his attention. Hey, Mitch, you know, what's happening with that ice machine? This is the CEO of the company, right? Yeah. And he said, oh, nobody ordered it? Okay, I'll do it. So he personally did the research, ordered the ice machine. And what do you think happened? It became part of the folklore at the company. So this was years ago. They still talk about the damn ice machine <laughs> as, you know, as, as, as an example of how, how, how caring a leader Mitch is. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. so simple. Mm -hmm. So it can be challenging, but, but to start with, with the really simple questions, like, what do you need? And, can, and by the way, that doesn't mean they say yes to everything. Mm -hmm. Like they, they said no to beer pong Fridays. <laughs> I thought that might be a bit of an HR issue, you know, and they, and they've had, you know, it's not perfect. It's, it's not, not nothing is ever, you know, a straight up trajectory. They've had their fits and starts and and advantages and disadvantages. You know, he did he did say that, you know, there there have been instances where where people have taken this idea of friendship and love a little bit too far. And uh, <laughs> some people, you know, violated some HR 
rules along the way. And, and of course, that was used as an opportunity to say, no, that's not what we mean. <laughs> it's a good teaching moment. <laughs> a good teaching moment. Mm -hmm. it, it's what happens. <laughs> but but it's all in the, in the service of making the place better. And, you know, they're a great case study. I talk about them a lot nowadays because I'm so proud of them for one thing. But, you know, it just shows all the way down to the bottom line. And, you know, I've had the opportunity to, I've only been able to visit there in person once. You know, I've gotten to know lots of folks at the company. And it was, uh, it was just a blast. You know, they bring in a food truck, I think it's every Thursday and they feed the whole company. Nice. So people can have lunch together. So I was there on food truck day and uh, I spent the entire day there and I said goodbye to Mitch at the end of the day. I was walking out through the main area, the main floor on the, the, where most of the kind of the team operation is. So this was the cubicle, you know, the shortened cubicles that I mentioned earlier. So I'm walking through and I had spoken to the entire company earlier in the day. So they all knew who I was and I was waving, kind of waving goodbye to people. And all of a sudden, all these people popped up out of their cubicles with, with, with Nerf guns <laughs> and started shooting at me. I ducked and ran for cover. And apparently that's one of their traditions. When somebody's walking through, they, they, they just stop what they're doing and they, they fire. Nerf balls at, mm -hmm. because they're just having a blast. They're having mm -hmm. fun and it didn't hurt at all. <laughs> That's good to know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There was no, no actual, there was no actual damage inflicted. Oh, it was just really good. funny. Yeah. yeah, it was really funny. It's so great that they have incorporated a culture of joy because I think joy is such an important thing and also kind of helps you with creativity and so on. But there, there seems to be kind of depending on the business, a real hesitation to bring those kinds of enjoyments or silliness into business. Has that been your experience? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Less and less. I think, I think it's, um, people are becoming less resistant to that idea. You know, I, um, on another, another one of, of my podcasts, I interviewed Jim Kuzis. So Jim is one of my mentors, co-author with Barry Posner of the leadership challenge, which is some of the most significant research on leadership on the planet. And I was talking to him about this very thing. And I said, you know, Jim, I tell people all the time that people misinterpret what it means to have a love-based environment. The way they interpret it is people are walking around with big goofy grins on their faces all the time and nobody ever argues. And every so often you, you stop the action to have a big group hug in the hallway and, you know, and everything is, is just joyful and chipper and happy all the time. And that's, and, and frankly, you know, that sounds nauseating to me because a, a place that's, because that, but a place that that's really characterized by love tends to be, there's, there's more debate sometimes you have, you have more conflict sometimes, but for the right reasons, because we hold each other to that higher standard that we were talking about before. It could be much livelier, much more debate, much, much more challenging for a lot of people. So I, I laid out that whole scenario for Jim and you know, who's my mentor and I kind of bow down to him, right? I mean, he's, he's the guy that first got me even paying attention to love in, in leadership, you know, mm -hmm. in the early nineties, he says, well, yeah, I get it. He said, but I don't see what's wrong with people walking around with big grins on their faces all the time. <laughs> what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? And I mm -hmm. thought, damn, you know, that's, that's right. 
Mm-hmm. What's too much, too much joy. <laughs> can't, can't have, can't stand for that. What the We've heck? reached the maximum of joy for today. That's we must right. stop smiling now. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> All smiles will stop. It doesn't make any sense when you think about it that way, right? Because again, I think people confused, confuse joy and love and happiness. They conflate it with laziness. Mm-hmm. That, oh, if I'm just too concerned about being joyful, I'm not going to get my work done. You know, who cares? It doesn't matter if you get it done or not. That is not the point. Yeah. It's it's that those beautiful characteristics of our human experience bring us more fully to our work. I'm sounding like a broken record. More fully to our work. We do more creative work. We're more efficient. We're more productive. We help each other more. We come up with better ideas for all the right reasons. That's what we have to what we have to gain as business people in putting these these kind of priorities on basic human happiness, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And my experience has been that when people love what they do and, and they, there's just a commitment to do it better. There's just when they love their team, when they, they want to do their very best and, and they bring it and they're excited about what they're, they're creative. They, they find different ways. There's none of that, at least I found with my teams. There wasn't that, well, I don't want to do that. Or that's not really my job. It's more like hands in. And so and yeah. to me, that was that really exemplified that people really invested in what we were doing. It's so, true. It's yeah. true. And and still, even, even still, it's always a, uh, a journey of learning and discovery. So for example, I'm coaching a leader at a big US government agency. And she loves her team. And her team loves her. And I know this because I heard her describe how she feels about her team. I heard her theorize about how she feels her team feels about her. But then I had a meeting with her team. And I said, you know, describe her to me. What do you think? And they love her. No question about it. But here's the problem. When the conversation turned to, well, what can she do to be a better leader for you? What they said was, she could accept our help more. Mm. So here's what was happening. She loves her team so much. She knows they're already working really hard. So she, she doesn't like to pile other things up on her plate. So she ends up doing them herself mm-hmm. and they end up seeing communications from her logged in at three o'clock in the morning. They see her burning out because she loves them so much. She doesn't want to give them more work because they love her so much. They want her to give them more work. <laughs> right now that yeah. is a wonderful problem to solve. It really mm-hmm. is. Yeah. Versus the alternative, which is, you know, they, they hate each other so much that any, any little, any little thing gets interpreted as, as an attack. So now it's just really, it's simply a matter of saying, are you hearing what they're saying? Mm-hmm. Are you willing to, you know, it's not, they don't want to be burned out either, but you can give them more. They're asking you to give them more and it's going to make you a better leader because you're going to have more energy and you're not going to, you know. so that is a, a love-based problem. Mm-hmm, but absolutely. in my opinion, 
you know, it's never going to be problem free. So I'd much rather deal with problems like that. Yeah. yeah, I was thinking about the fact that sometimes we we love people in the way that we think they would want us to love them rather than what they need or what they say, how they want that expression of love. Yeah. So in that case, she was, you know, burning herself out thinking, oh, my team's way too overwhelmed, but not really bringing the team into and saying, this is a situation, what can we do as a team? So, well, so she does. But the thing is, she does that in mm. in everything. And that's one of the reasons they love her. I mean, yeah. she's she, she she's constantly coming to them and saying, what should we do about this? And it's very collaborative. But when it comes to the things that she feels she can do, she could take on herself without burdening her team, that's where it, mm. that's where the opportunity lies for them. But is she loving herself? Like, is she being loving to herself? <laughs> not not as much as she could be, which is the other thing that they're saying is we, we want you to take care, better care of yourself. Because yeah. we don't want you to burn out. Yeah, it's uh, and and you know the love of self, which is I, I know something that you focus a lot on. You know, love of self, compassion for self, really is 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 at the core of all of this. It's it's very difficult, if not impossible, for me to 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 fully express that for people and create that for people unless I have it within myself first, within and for myself first. And ironically, that's there's there's a lot of ironies in this conversation, but. <laughs> But, you know, ironically, that's the hardest thing for most people to do. That's true. Very you know, true. Look, yourself in the, look at yourself in the mirror Yeah. and say, I love you and mean yeah. it is like, ah, no, yeah. I can't. <clears throat> but it's really easy to practice when, when nobody's around, you know? Yeah, for sure. I try to do that practice with my kids. And when they were littler, it was easier for them. But as they get older, as they go through, it's much, much harder for them to look at themselves in the mirror. Yeah, but you know what? In this in this age of Zoom, <laughs> it's easier to do because if you're in Zoom meetings all the time, you can look at yourself pretty much all day long. True. <laughs> it's like looking into a mirror all day long. And like right now, I've got us on gallery view. So I see you and I see me. And and it, and and you know, I'm seeing myself peripherally, right? Mm -hmm. But but I can see me and and at the big, you know, I've been using zoom for years, but not to the degree that we all are now. Yeah. And, you know, way back when in the in the early days of the COVID, you know, back in the, <laughs> of the COVID. And it's even many months uh, ago. <clears throat> yeah, a year ago, almost I was after being on zoom countless hours every day. I was starting to have dreams. In zoom. I mean, I was having Zoom, Zoom dreams. It was Zoom-based dreams? Wow. Yeah, yeah. It's like my dream was in Zoom, you know? I was having a, a bunch of those. But, but I also noticed I was having dreams where I found myself, I was having nightmares where I was, I was uh, trying to remember. It was a long time ago, but, but I woke up feeling like, oh, I had this dream that, that, I, that I was a complete fraud. Oh. That I was, that I was a phony, that I was... A charlatan. It's called imposter syndrome. Yeah. You yeah, hear a exactly. lot about it. Absolutely. There's lots There's, of people who struggle with that. Yeah. Right. But but I I have not struggled with that. Mm -hmm. This wasn't this was a new thing. I mean, oh. I certainly haven't I haven't not that I haven't had moments of of doubt and questioning like we all do, but I yeah, certainly hadn't struggled with it. And uh, and I realized that that it was because I was looking at myself all day long. I was looking, it was like looking at, it was like looking in a mirror all day long and it was creating 
it was creating a self-inquiry kind mm. of a loop. And uh, yeah, so it didn't last long, but, but it was really, it was a great illustration of how important it is for us to pay attention to our own internal environment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of, one of the things that, uh, that you will hear about me from people that know me is that this is who, this is who I am. I mean, there, there's, there is no, there is no facade. There's no act. There's no, you know, people read my books and then they, they meet me and they say, wow, you're just like you are in your book. Cause I, I narrate all my books. Mm. It's like, yeah. Mm. Or they see me on stage and then we have a conversation afterwards and it's like, oh, you're the same person in the audience. Well, yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. And okay. that's important for any of us, but particularly for a guy who is in the business of teaching people that love is good business. I, mm -hmm. I, I better be emulating that. So for me to have a dream that said, you're a fraud, you're a phony. It was like, I had to take, what the hell is going on here? So I did, I, you know, I, and I constantly do a lot of internal mm -hmm. uh, reflection and challenging myself. And I do not, I'm the first to say, I do not fully and completely live up to everything that I teach. 24 mm -hmm. hours a day. I don't, but I can tell you that I aspire to. Yeah. I aspire it, to. I think it's all we can do, right? Like we have to choose. We have to choose every day to love ourselves a little bit more, to be more compassionate with others, especially those that frustrate us. And what I find in my journey is that the more that I love myself, it's sort of filling up my own bucket. When I fill up my bucket, I can give others people for my overflow, not for my reserves. But when I'm not full, when I'm trying to love those people or I'm trying to give to them, it's a real challenge. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And, and you know, again, it's, it's pretty universal. We all yeah, have to work sure. on it, but there are so many people that the, the thought, you know, the experience of looking at yourself in the mirror, I mean, eye to eye and, yeah. and having a conversation with yourself that says, you know, it's like that, uh, who's that old Saturday night live skit al franken used to do it something like stuart, i like me stuart yes, Smalley, stuart Little, yeah. <laughs> stuart, yeah, something like that. yeah it's 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 kind of reminiscent of that which was hilarious yes but there is an element of that that's that's really true and and really powerful the, the thing is that is not enough mm -hmm. it's not enough to be able to look at my son's right and doggone it people like me yeah that's, that's that's not enough then you have to do the action you have to you have to do the work uh, but it does start with that for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And especially like looking at our own flaws and being able to deal with emotions such as shame, anger, or frustration, or feeling not enough. And then I find that the more I'm able to do that for myself, the more I'm able to do that for others. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. Going back to the, the concept of love in the workplace, I know that I, some of my listeners are probably going to say, yeah, this is all great, but how do I love so-and-so who's super annoying at work? <laughs> and, you know, she's always messing things up or not doing such a great job. How can we help those individuals become, you know, a little bit more loving or understanding why it's important to kind of bring that <clears throat> yeah. to work? Yeah, it's a great question. So again, I'll, I'll tell you my personal bias on this. Sure. My personal bias is to like people. So there, there are very few people in my, in my life that I, and in my working sphere that I don't like, but there have been some, <laughs> there have been some people <laughs> that I have chosen not to hang out with. So in a work environment where, you know, yeah, I get this love thing, but you don't know this person. So first of all, 
let's let's take that to the to the extreme. Let's say you're the boss, you're trying to love your team, but there's this person that's just not cutting it. And you've had lots of conversations. It's just not working. It's just not working. Let's understand there is such a thing as tough love. And I can love you and not like you very much. I can love and appreciate who you are as a human being and not want to hang out with you. I can love you and fire you mm -hmm. in the extreme. I've done that before. And so let's, let's acknowledge that again, this is not about some kind of Pollyanna vision of, of everybody liking everybody and wanting to hang out and being best friends with the entire world. Mm -hmm. Although some people I think do have that capability. I, I don't, I don't think I'm one of them, but you know, but here's the other thing I can always be kind. I can really not like you and be very kind to you and not in a fake smile sort of a way, but there, there's never an excuse for being anything other than kind. And kindness is very closely aligned with love. So if I, if I'm having trouble tapping into that, that love thing, can I at least hold myself to a standard of kindness? And, you know, one of the ways that I, I, I describe love at work in, in the book is kindness plus high standards. So I can, I can be kind and hold you accountable. I can be kind and disagree with you. I can be kind and fire you. I can be, there's never any reason to not be kind other than I just had a completely ridiculously bad day and I screwed up and I yelled at somebody or whatever. And then that's where the, the genuine sincere apology comes into play. Having said that, you know, you can't use that as a fallback mechanism too often. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry again. Oh, yeah. sorry. Sorry. After a while, it's like, yeah, you are sorry. That's for sure. So kindness is the, is the solution in any scenario, in my opinion. That's beautiful. Thank you. And thank you for mentioning terminations because one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, because I believe that you can do terminations in a loving and compassionate way. I've had previous roles in HR. And one of the things I saw was like the ghosting of people, how they were there like one day, then the next day they weren't. And then that's what we used to call the no cake email. <laughs> so nobody said goodbye to you. You just kind of disappeared off the face of the earth and nobody talked about it. And I get that the, the, the reasoning was like the confidentiality piece, the, you know, minutes of settlement and so on. But it actually terrified people. It actually had the impact of making people really, really afraid of when they were going to be just kind of ghosted, I guess. How can we do terminations in a, in a loving way? I think any, any good HR person should be able to answer that question for you and still do it in a way that's, that doesn't, that doesn't open us up for any kind of liability. But this idea of, you know, escorting people to their desk and watching them empty their desk out and then escorting them out of the building, taking their badge and, and everything <laughs> and saying, you know, get out. I suppose there are scenarios where you want to do that. If, if it's, I mean, it depends on the particulars of that particular, the particulars of the particular scenario, <laughs> but, but I think it's really, again, it comes down to kindness, right? It's if I've got to let you go because 
I've got to let people go. We're not, we're, we, we can't afford to keep everybody. That's very different from I have to let you go because you stole money from us. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So it, it's got to be a different scenario. But it can always be kind. I have to let you go because I have to let you go. Here's why. These are the reasons why and wherefore. And you do all the HR speak that you want. Mm-hmm. And then what about you know, writing, writing letters of reference. What about inviting ex-employees to come to company events? What about, you know, staying in touch on social media? What about putting them in contact with other people that might be good, you know, potential hires for them? There's lots, lots of things that we can do, but this idea that, that because they're, they're, they're you know, what, what do you describe as like a, they're dead to me. Ghosted. <laughs> you are dead to me. You're a ghost. I will ghost you back for no good reason does exactly what you described. It creates paranoia within, within the ranks. What's going to happen to me when I, when I'm gone or when I quit. And yeah, it's just, the thing is people can't be privy to the reason though, because let's say, suppose that the person stole something, which that's a different scenario. That's a different scenario for sure. But the issue is like, or if a person had a performance issue and they're getting terminated because of the performance issue, the people on the other end don't have a right to be privy to that. But I think what happens is that because they don't have a right to be privy to that and we want to keep the confidentiality of the person, it becomes like a ghosting. And so people don't know what happened. They yeah. just see this person disappear. And I think that's where the struggle is for people in terms of that was a person that some of those people loved, regardless of what happened. Right. And the other piece for me as well is there's a whole issue of forgiveness, but we won't. <laughs> that's a different yeah, podcast. Yeah, yeah. Right. Sure, sure. But but I, I think it's, again... This is where HR people get get their reputation from. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that all HR people have yeah, a negative yeah, reputation. For sure. For sure. I, I don't want to Some apply that. But but the, the HR people who have a negative reputation, this is where they get it from. Mm-hmm. That's a better way of saying it. Yeah. Um, by the way, I'm married to a former HR manager. So so the the idea that you want to protect the company from liability is a totally noble and good aspiration. But we also acknowledge that transparency is a positive thing. That's why it's become a buzzword over the last decade or so, a couple of decades. So what is it that I can say that's not going to violate any, you know, anything that's going to bring us any kind of you know, negative consequences that's still going to acknowledge what people are feeling? So to use the scenario that you just said, Giselle, I know a lot of, I know a lot of people here loved her, love her, present tense. You're really disappointed to see her go. You're wondering why. And all I could tell you is that we had, we feel we had good reason for it. And there are things that I can't say. So I'll leave it to your inference. And it's, it's not, it's not important why, but just know that there's a reason. And, and that's it. As opposed to pretending it never happened. <laughs> yeah. Right. Avoid avoidance yeah. is is never a good thing. So just say what you say what you can say. And people are people aren't stupid. They they know it's like, oh, okay, I guess. Now it might make me more curious and, and all that. And and but that's human nature. Mm-hmm. Um, I did want to ask if there was anything you wanted to share with the audience around what you're working on. Yeah. Um I'm working on a lot of things. <laughs> Most of it nowadays, in the days of the COVID, you know, involves sitting in this in this very chair, in this 
same position all day long because it's all it's all virtual of course we're we're just putting together our next we certify people to teach the extreme leadership workshop mm -hmm. so we're, we're just now putting together our next virtual certification program so you know people can reach out to me stevefarber.com i'm mm -hmm. happy to you know give you the information we don't even have the registration page set up yet so we're working on that i'm working on my new book uh, is coming out in, I think, I believe the pub date is, publication date is August 3rd. It's a collaboration. It's a, a writing, I've written a book with my friend JJ French, who was the, the founder of Manager for and guitarist for the rock and roll band Twisted Sister. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So <laughs> it's his, it's his story. It's called Twisted Business. Oh, cool. And this was by JJ French and Steve Farber, but it is his story it was told in his voice. I just mm -hmm. helped him uh, make it work on the page. So that's going to be a lot of fun promoting that. Oh. It's both a it's both a memoir and a business book because JJ is he's the business guy. He does he owns the brand, he manages the band, he does the licensing deals and all of that stuff. And they are one of the most licensed bands in rock and roll history with their songs. We're not going to take it. Yeah, and I want to rock. Oh huge my gosh, yeah, songs. huge. Yeah. yeah. So JJ is, you know, he's the business guy behind all that. So it's a business book and a memoir. He likes to call it a bizwar. <laughs> and uh, and it's uh, it it really turned out great. It's a it's a lot of fun. So that's that's a oh, big that's project. Wonderful. The promotion of that and all that is coming up here pretty soon. And yeah, we got a lot of stuff cooking. So stevefarber.com, extremeleadership.com. And then, of course, you mentioned the podcast, uh, Love is Just Damn Good Business podcast. Yeah. I've been spending a good amount of time on that as well. It's been a lot yeah. of fun. Well, thank you so much, Steve, for being a guest today. Check out um, Steve's website, streamleadership.com. And thank you. And please join in for another episode of the Loving Compassion podcast with Giselle. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. Well done.